This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Tonight, then, if you let's get the word of God out, and just want to read from Isaiah chapter fifty-three. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no former comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his own soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your holy inspired word we pray O God that you will give us a sense of the cost of our redemption Lord it was paid at great cost to you and we thank you Lord that you freely gave it to us so we bless you tonight we thank you for your inspired word we pray our hearts will be open and our ears will be open in Jesus name Amen. Amen Whenever we approach any subject and any scripture that depicts the suffering of the Savior, uh, surely we need to stop and reflect upon its profound and deep meaning. Isaiah 53, we stand the holy ground. We feel almost like Moses that we should take our shoes off. What could this statement possibly mean? Yet it pleased 
the Lord to bruise him. That's a profound statement, isn't it? It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Does that mean that God delights in human suffering? That he gets some kind of statistic pleasure from seeing men tortured and murdered? Does it mean that God's some kind of tyrannical monster whose only pleasure is complete in the misery of others, even to the extent of his own son not spared in pursuit of some depraved desire? If that seems too much, believe me, there's people who believe that. One so-called evangelical preacher in England said that God putting his son to death on the cross was equivalent to cosmic child abuse. Stephen Fry, who's the uh, broadcaster and celebrity and show host and all the rest of it, BBC, uh, calls him a, a British institution. Well, whenever he was on RTE two years ago, 2015, with Gay Byrne, who is a very well-renowned broadcaster in RTE, and Gay Byrne had a program called was about her faith, the meaning of life. And in that program, he interviewed celebrities, Bob Geldof, Bono, and Stephen Fry and others. And I asked them, what does it mean to them? What is the meaning of life? And whenever it came to Stephen Fry, uh, let me just read some of the things that he said. And Gay Byrne said to him, if you died, what would you say to God? And in his imagination, Fry has this conversation. He would say to God, how dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? That's not right. It is utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain. By the way, he's been taken up for blasphemy uh, recently. I don't know how that's turning out. I suspect he'll get off anyway. He goes on to say, Pern, Bern, uh, Gay Byrne pressed him and said, well, how would you react if you were locked outside the pearly gates? And Fry said, I would say, bone cancer in children, what's that all about? Because the God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac, an utter maniac, totally selfish. We have to spend the rest of our lives on our knees thanking him. What kind of a God would do that? He goes on to say, it's perfectly apparent that he is monstrous, utterly monstrous, and deserves no respect whatsoever. And the moment you banish him, life becomes simpler and purer and cleaner, more worthy of living, in my opinion. Now, apart from the blasphemous statements, and apart from the vitriol that he spewed in that program, that, by the way, has been watched now by 7 million people on YouTube. That's only a snippet of what he said. In fact, Gay Byrne said it was the longest answer to any question he's ever been asked in his life. Because all that bile against God, that anger, that hatred, that bitterness was spewed out on national television. But actually, 
He got it wrong in so many things, apart from the blasphemy. For instance, how do you create a world in which there is such misery that it's not our fault, it's not right? But the fact is, God didn't create a world full of misery. God created a perfect world, a paradise. That's what God created. God created an Eden. God created a place that was beautiful, that was totally fit for mankind, where there was no misery, where there was no sickness, no disease, no death, no crime, none of that. And that's the world that God will have again someday. But this is the the mind of somebody who hates a God that he says he doesn't believe in, that doesn't exist. And then he talks about God being utterly evil and unjust God. And as soon as he mentions evil and unjust, then he's gone from rationality to morality. He's putting a moral statement out there that even if anybody's evil, that's a moral statement. So how does he arrive at a moral statement? Where does that come from? What measurement does he use? Of course, the argument today is, well, it's nothing to do with God. It's the way we were born. It's the way we were brought up. It's what we learned. We acquired this, and we know right from wrong. But wait a minute. Your morality and my morality may be totally different. His morality and my morality is certainly different. So who's right and who's wrong? How do we measure it? If it's just a case of we want to believe our morality is right, then we can't argue against somebody else who's a different morality. Hitler believed when he gassed six million Jews, he believed morally that was the right thing to do. There's no question he believed that. That was a moral thing he did. He believed that was morally right to do. But it wasn't. It certainly wasn't. How, how, how are we going to measure what morality is if we discount God, then there's no moral lawgiver to give us a yardstick to go on. Then somebody else's moral opinions is as good as somebody else's. But what if it's different? What if somebody says raping is morally okay? Because around Sweden today, there's bunches of men going around raping people and saying, it's morally okay. We ought to do this. It's right to do this. But it's not right to do that. But how do we know it's not right? They believe it's right. Their moral compass says it's right. But ours doesn't. And so once you discount God out of the thing, then you're going to struggle when you talk about morality because you have nothing to measure it by other than how you feel about it. But if somebody else feels different, well... And that's the world we live in today, by and large. Well, everything's relevant to how you feel and how I feel. But not according to Scripture, not according to the Bible, not according to God because there is a moral measurement. And God has given us a conscience to be able to think right from wrong. And then he goes on and says, about banishing God, he says, the moment you banish him, life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, and worth more living, in my opinion. Really? Really? So if you ban God... Life's going to get better. Try telling that to the people who lived under Stalin who banned God from Russia, who slaughtered 20 million people. Try telling them life was better without God. 
Try telling the people that Mazi Tung slaughtered by the millions when he banned God from China. Try telling that it's better. Try telling the people in North Korea whom Kim Il-sung has banned the Bible and Christianity and God and anybody that believes in it will be imprisoned or put to death. Try, try telling them that life is wonderful in North Korea. Why doesn't Stephen Fry go and live in North Korea where there's no God, go and live in Russia where they don't want God, go and live in China where they don't want God, see what it's like over there. But of course he's not going to do that, is he? He wants to live in Christian countries. Notice he didn't mention Allah in that. <laughs> he wouldn't dare mention Allah, would he? Because <laughs> then he'd be looking for a hole to hide in for the rest of his life. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. It says here, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. But the Bible says about God in Exodus 18.32 that God gets no pleasure even in the death of the wicked. He will deal with the wicked and has and does and will but he gets no pleasure in it. It gives God no pleasure to see the death of the wicked. So what does it mean then that it was pleased the Lord to bruise him? You see, God had to, for God to save the world, to save you and me, then he had a choice to make. Jesus would have to go to the cross and die to save us from our sins and to be our Savior. So the choice was either sin would be spared and man would go on for the rest of their life held in bondage to sin and take them to hell, or else his son would be spared. But he couldn't do both. It had to be one or the other. God could only make one choice. And happily for our sakes, he made the right choice. He chose that his son would come and pay the penalty for our sins, that we would never be lost and never have to go to hell. Thank you, Lord. But that would mean putting his own son to grief. That would mean he would have to make that heart-rending choice to allow his son to go on the cross where his son would be bruised and put to grief. And having made that choice, we read it there a moment ago, it says he was pleased. He saw the travail of his soul and he was satisfied. He was pleased with the choice that he made. God was not pleased with his son suffering in the sense that he could no pleasure in his son's suffering. However, he was pleased of what his son's suffering accomplished. That's what pleased him. That's what satisfied him. Not that his son suffered, but what his son is accomplished by his suffering, that's what pleased God. That's what pleased the Father. That's what satisfied him. Even though it was a great personal cost, especially to his son, and also to him. It was great personal cost. Now, part of that bruising was grief. 
Three times it's mentioned, we read it, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Surely has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 10, he has put him to grief. Certainly Jesus was well acquainted with grief. He understood grief. He understood sickness. He understood pain. He understood hurt. He saw what sin had done to the human race. Spent 33 years on this earth. In his humanity, when he looked at Mary and Martha at the grave of Lazarus in his humanity, when he saw the hurt and the pain in their eyes and in their face, he wept. He was grieved at what sin had done to his dear friends. It hurt him to the point where he wept bitterly. Even though he knew he was going to resurrect him, but in his humanity, he felt the pain and the hurt that sin had done. Don't you think he grieves when he sees man's awful inhumanity to man? Don't you think it grieves the heart of the Lord? Don't you think it grieves him when he sees the wickedness and the cruelty of men with all their despicable deeds and their heartlessness? If you and I are grieved at what we see in our television screens, whenever we see what's happening in the Middle East especially, and it grieves us, sometimes you can hardly even bear to watch it. How much more is the Son of God grieved who gave himself for the world? When you think of the terrible abuse of children, especially by those that was, had a sacred trust over them, you think of the awful injustices, the victims of innocent people, the innocent victims, and the millions in abject poverty, and those whose lives and livelihoods are destroyed then daily with, with all kinds of pestilence and, and, and volcanoes and tsunamis and all the rest of it. I mean, this world is in bad shape, isn't it? But this Savior of ours, he lived on this earth. He saw all this with his own eyes. He felt the pain. He felt the hurt. It touched those he loved the most. And so when Stephen Fry and his elk blames God for being some kind of an unfeeling monster, he forgets that that same God that he's accusing is the same God who sent his son into this cruel, wicked world to save us from sin. I don't know who wrote this. I'm sure I read it before, but it's worth reading again. It says, At the end of time, billions of people were seated on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank away from the back from the brilliant light before them. But some groups near the front talked heatedly, not cringing, but cring with, crin not cringing with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror and beatings and torture and death. In another group, a Negro boy lowered his collar. What about this? He demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, there was a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer? She murmured. It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he had permitted in this world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear or hunger or hatred. What, good God, what did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. 
So each of these groups sent forth their leader chosen because he had suffered the most. A Jew, a Negro, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a thalidomide child. And in the center of the vast plain, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case, and it was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God would be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. And at the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die so there can be no doubt that he died. And let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing the sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered a word. No one moved. For suddenly, all knew that God had already served the sentence. Some of these detractors and blasphemers should have a long silence and keep their mouth shut. They don't know what they're talking about. Surely he has borne our griefs. Not just the words, but our griefs, our sicknesses, our pains, our hearts, hurts, our sins, our mess-ups, our blunders. That's why Jesus can say, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. That's why Peter can say, cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Verse 10, he has put him to grief. Think about that. Think about those three hours on the cross when darkness fell, when the sun refused to shine, when Jesus was bearing the whole load, the full judgment for our sins, when he was drinking the very last dregs of the cup of this world's sin and brokenness and lostness. What grief! More than that, more than that, his own father had to turn away where he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Almost in plan, I understand why they have forsaken me, but why have you forsaken me? Who could ever get to the depth of that statement? That's putting him to grief. When the very sun refused to shine, with the very earth convulsed by the, by the injustice of it all. And there was a quake, and the rocks were rent, and the graves were opened. That's what I mean when it says he put him to grief. Tens of thousands of people were crucified in Palestine during the Roman occupation. Sometimes hundreds would be lining the roads where they crucified them. 
Not one of them was like Jesus. I'm sure some of them were guiltless of the charges against them. But they were all born in sin. And we're all sinners. But not Jesus. He was the only one that was spotless and pure and holy and righteous, undefiled, separate from sinners, the Bible says. But yet, the mystery of all mysteries, <laughs> the wonder of all wonders, he was bruised for our iniquities. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Surely neither the Father or the Son could prove their love for us any more than on Calvary. Hmm. What a Savior. What a God we serve. Somebody says that when Jews saw Christ weep at the grave of Lazarus, we know that he says, the Jews said, behold how he loved him. And he did. But somebody said, when you and I look at the cross and see Christ on the cross, we can say, behold how he loved us. Behold how he loved us. George Matheson, a Scottish minister, he went to university to train in theology, wanted to be a minister. 20 years old, he became blind. His fiancée, whom he loved dearly, left him. She says, I don't want to live the rest of my life with a blind man. It crushed him. He was brokenhearted. But he still stuck to his studies. And in the end, he did become a minister, Presbyterian minister, and served as a minister for many years in two or three churches. He never did marry, never got over the derision of his fiancée. But he lived with his sister for years, and they were very, very close. And he was quite dependent upon her for lots of things. But she decided that she wanted to get married. And on the eve of her wedding ceremony, he was on his own. And he felt such a, a loneliness and sadness engulf him. Because he knew for the rest of his life, he would literally be on his own. And in the midst of that, loneliness and sadness, the intensity of that that was just crushing him. Out of that came probably what he was most famous for, apart from everything he wrote and everything he preached, was that great song, that great hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go, which we've been singing ever since then. And here's what he said about it before I just read a couple of verses. He said, I'm quite certain that the whole work was completed in five minutes and equally sure that it never required at my hands any retouching or correction. I have no natural gift of rhythm 
All the other verses I've ever written are manufactured articles. So I had to think much about them. But he says, this came like a day spring from on high. <laughs> that was the Holy Spirit put this in his heart. And you know, when he wrote it, and he read it, and he repeated it, it brought great comfort and solace in the midst of that pain and loneliness he felt. And it's been a great solace to many, many people ever since he wrote it. It's in all of our hymn books. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in its ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. I'll skip some verses, but here's one, the last. O cross that lifteth up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lend dust life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red life that shall endless be. What words? There's about four or five verses, and he got it in five minutes. It just was born in him by the Holy Spirit. In fact, just about every great hymn there ever has been has been born of the Holy Spirit. God just put it into the heart of the author. And looking at the cross, I dare not ask to fly from thee. There used to be an old song, Jesus, keep me near the cross. We used to sing that, it was lovely. And it's at the cross, at the cross where we first saw the light, wasn't it? And we never should stray far from the cross. Even though we've gone on to Pentecost and all the rest, but we should always think and focus our thoughts around the cross. That's what we do most every Sunday morning at the communion, isn't it? It brings us back to the place where he put him to grief for us. What a savior tonight. In spite of the Stephen Fry's of this world and all of the atheists that are spouting and shouting, one day, Mr. Fry and all the rest of them, one day, will bow down before the Lord Jesus. <laughs> and they will have to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. <laughs> And whether they say through gritted teeth or not, I don't know, but they will say it, that's for sure. And they will know he is Lord when they see him seated majestically on his throne to judge the living and the dead. Glory to God. What a Lord, what a Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you tonight for such a sacrifice that was made for each and every one of us. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit opened up our eyes and our hearts to see it and to know it and to experience it. We thank you for that day, that night, when we bowed down at the foot of the cross and we received Christ as our Lord and Savior. What a life-changing moment that was. We have never been the same, and we thank you for that tonight. So thank you for suffering for us for taking all the grief and the pain and the punishment and the penalty for us tonight. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We adore you. We worship you. We give our lives unto you. We serve you gladly. And we thank you. In your name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content 
available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal, or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.